0: As we continue our study through the epistle of 1 John, I'd like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let us give careful attention this day to the reading of God's holy word. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are all well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thus far the reading of God's word. as we continue our series today through 1st John let me very quickly summarize where we have been and I'll summarize uh, where we've been by simply stating a question and giving the answer first uh, sermon in the series first was, or can be summarized this way, where there is no historical revelation, there is no fellowship with God. That was verses 1 through 4. Second, where there is no walking in the light, there is no fellowship with God. Verses 5-7. Third, where there is no confession of sin, there is no fellowship with God. Verses 8-9. And, and today, where there is no advocate with the Father, there is no fellowship with God. Chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 2. Even through that brief little summary, there was a refrain that kept occurring. There is no fellowship with God. And that seems to be, I believe, the essence of this first chapter to establish the need for fellowship with God. I pray that it is evident to you by now, dear ones, that the goal of salvation of which John proclaims is that blessed fellowship with God. You know, today many proudly exclaim, well, I had dinner with this celebrity or that celebrity. They think that you ought to be impressed. Or they may say, I got so and so's autograph, or I talked with so and so. Well, the ancient Gnostics and the modern Gnostics carried the same kind of celebrity experience into their experience with God. You know, once I spent an evening with God, I had an experience with God. In other words, they're talking about some kind of mystical experience that occurred at some point in their life. The Apostle John's understanding of fellowship, dear ones, fellowship with God is quite different from having this mystical experience, this extra-biblical kind of revelation that comes to them. He understands fellowship with God entirely differently. Fellowship with God, according to John, is daily growing. Daily growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in your enjoyment of the Word of God and of the Spirit of God. Fellowship with God is drawing from Him life and peace and holiness and love and contentment just as a branch draws life from the vine to which it is connected. Fellowship with God, dear ones, is making His thoughts your thoughts. Fellowship with God is making His words Your words, His will, your will. That's fellowship with God. And it's a process. It's growing in ever greater degrees of fellowship and intimacy with God. Dear ones, the glory of fellowship with God is that God has not merely given you unspeakable blessings and gifts, that He has done, but more importantly, God has given to you Himself. God could create many worlds if He chose to do so, He could create many worlds in order to give to you, but He cannot create another God. He alone is the sovereign all-wise God and He has given Himself unto you. What more? I ask you, what more could God give to you, His people, than Himself? Is there anything more valuable than God? He has given Himself unto you. So what if you never fully see all your earthly dreams realized? You have God. What more do you need? Let family, friends or foes scoff and scorn. Let them ridicule. Let them persecute. You have God. You are dear ones, the truly wealthy ones, the truly blessed ones of the earth. Because you have been called to enjoy the living God who has given himself unto you. As we have looked at this section of Scripture, each of the claims that has been made by the Gnostic false teachers those claims, just to refresh your memory, are these. First of all, the Gnostic false teachers in verses 6 and 7 claim sin does not break our fellowship with God. Secondly, they claim sin does not exist in our nature, in verses 8 through 9. And today, we will look at the false claim sin does not exist in our conduct, sin does not consist or exist in our words or our actions. Each of these false claims made by the Gnostic teachers has the effect of minimizing, of excusing, or denying sin. God declares through John that if you are to enjoy the salvation of God, which is essentially that of having fellowship with the Most High God, You must come, dear ones, you must come as a guilty sinner. You must acknowledge your sin. You must confess it. All must come to Christ confessing their need of His forgiveness, their need of His righteousness, their need of a Savior, of a sanctifier. Let's consider at this time this third claim, false claim, of these Gnostic teachers who sought to mislead Christians from the true faith. Here was the third Gnostic claim, and you'll find it in verse 10. 1 John 1.10 <clears throat> If we say that we have not sinned, So, here is the false claim. Sin does not exist in our conduct. If we say, remember that particular little phrase, if we say, begins each false claim that the Gnostic teachers have made. And here is the last one. If we say that we have not sinned. Not only does sin not exist in our nature, the Gnostic false teacher said, sin does not exist in our actions or our words either. Not only does the disease of sin not dwell in our hearts, but also there are no symptoms of that disease in our actions or our words. Notice the distinction very briefly here in verse 8 and in verse 10 between the claim that is made verse 8 says if we <clears throat> excuse me if we say that we have no sin speaking of no sin in our nature that's the previous false claim this one is distinguished from that one in that it is now said if we say that we have not sinned in our conduct through our actions or our words. Now, this might seem like a most amazing claim to those who are honest before God who see daily in their lives the evidence of sin. This might seem just just totally blow one's mind to imagine that somebody could actually say, we have not sinned. But it follows quite naturally from denying that previous false claim that the Gnostics made, denying original sin, denying a sinful nature, or affirming that sin has been completely eradicated from the soul through entire sanctification. Now, I would just have you know that uh, if you are wondering, could there possibly be anyone who claims, professes to be a Christian who could make this statement? Well, the Gnostics professed to be Christians, and they made this statement, though they were not Christians. And there are those today who do the same thing. I recall the testimony of an elderly, saintly gentleman who sincerely reported, this gentleman was in a church that I attended while in my teens. And he sincerely reported that he could not remember the last time that he had sinned. He believed that he had become entirely sanctified and he couldn't remember when he last sinned. Well, I remember another occasion. This was not an elderly man, but a younger man. who believed he could not sin because his heart was pure. He quoted Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure. And so he thought because he was pure, everything he did was pure. And I remember hearing how he actually committed adultery in the presence of his wife and said that he had not sinned because he is pure and everything he did was pure you say that's utterly amazing it's not amazing when we understand the deception and the corruption of the heart it is only by the grace of God dear ones that we come to realize what sin is be thankful that you're not in that position Titus 1.15 does not teach that whatever we do once we're Christian is pure in the eyes of God. To the pure, all things are pure. simply means that to those who have had their conscience purified by God, that those ceremonial aspects of the law, for example, the dietary eating of certain meats and things like this that were formerly unclean, now they can do so purely. That's not reckoned to be sin any longer. Even as First Timothy 4.5 says, that all things are sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. Well, I certainly have heard and I've read some of those televangelists of the Word of Faith movement who likewise have proclaimed they have reached a place of sinlessness. And so it's prevalent. It's around us. But, you know, dear ones, in spite of how heretical that is, I think that stands out in such a stark contrast to us. I'm not as concerned about you being swallowed up into that particular error. More often than not... It is not the denying of sin that you will hear taught from pulpits or read from so-called Christian authors today, but rather an excusing or a minimizing of sin. This, I believe, is really far more dangerous because it's more subtle. I will simply cite A couple of illustrations of of movements, I believe, that excuse and minimize sin. Some of these you may be familiar with, others you may not. But give careful attention to them. First, I'll simply designate as the Christian Life Victory Seminars, carried on by evangelicals and many evangelical churches today. And the second illustration of of those whom I believe excuse and minimize sin are found in the spiritual deliverance meetings of charismatics. And I'll explain both of these as we go on. The Christian Life Victory Seminars are generally very positive and optimistic in their presentation. They emphasize knowing who you are in Christ, and I agree with that. You should know who you are in Christ. They emphasize realizing the victorious side of the Christian life, and you should realize the victorious side of the Christian life. I have no problem with understanding the truth that you are more than conquerors through Christ who loves you. It is biblical to preach that we are more than conquerors through Christ. The problem, I believe, that comes through in many of these Christian Life Victory seminars is that the emphasis falls on victory in the Christian life through the putting on of Christ to the almost total neglect of the equally important truth that we are to put off sin. You are to put on Christ, but you are to equally put off sin. Dear ones, you cannot put on the new man until you put off the old man. And there needs to be an emphasis on both of those truths. You need to understand both clearly, not ignore one and emphasize the other. It's as if victory in these seminars is realized in not looking seriously at your sin. After all, some might say that's negative. That's a defeatist attitude to look at your sin. I want victory, so I will only focus on that which is positive. Or I've always been told by my parents what a failure I am. So I must exclusively focus my thoughts on my victorious position in Christ. Listen closely, dear ones. Both the Pharisee, who saw himself as a good and righteous man, a victorious man, if you will, and the tax collector, who saw himself as a sinner and a failure. Both of these men, were to come to Christ in exactly the same way. They were to beat their chests and cry out to God, Be merciful to me, God, for I am a sinner. Remember, it is always, according to Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3, Read those two chapters. It is always the pattern of putting off sin, putting off the old man, and putting on the new man, putting on Christ. The second illustration, that of the spiritual deliverance meetings of charismatics, I believe, on the other hand, often treats sin as if it were a demonic possession. A demonic possession that simply needs to be cast out. Deliverance comes from casting this sin out of the Christian. The body or soul has been invaded by this alien enemy of the soul. By hatred, by bitterness, by jealousy, by whatever sin. It's been invaded and it needs to be cast out. But, dear ones, that's not what the Bible teaches with regard to sin. Deliverance from sin comes not from casting it out, as if minimizing one's own responsibility for it. I've simply been overcome or invaded by this sin. But rather, deliverance comes from putting off the old man. Confession of sin. Repentance. Hatred for sin. Turning from sin. Sin. By the grace of God and putting on the new man, by believing that Christ actually truly forgives and He will forgive when you confess, believing that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, believing that sin no longer has dominion over you, believing that you have died to sin and have been raised in newness of life to Jesus Christ, that you are victorious in Christ. That's putting on Christ. Putting off sin and putting on Christ. Both of those ways, I believe, sin is minimized and excused, not faced for what it is. Our responsibility to deal with it in a biblical manner Just before I move on, one other way that I believe Christians may seek to escape responsibility for their sin is to justify it by either saying their motives were pure or their goal was righteous. Their motives were pure, their goal was righteous. Joseph Fletcher in his book, Situation Ethics, justifies the breaking of God's law if it is motivated by love. He cites the example of a woman separated from her family after World War II in Russia who could only be released from the prisoner camp to be returned to her family if she became pregnant. So so she devised this plan. She committed adultery with a prison guard, became pregnant, out of love, and was later reunited with their family. To the contrary, dear ones, the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. <clears throat> Remember, dear ones, a sincere person, the Bible says, can be sincerely wrong, even if their motives are sincere. They can be sincerely wrong. Proverbs 16.25 There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so we as Christians may seek to justify our sin because I did it out of love or I did it for this reason or that reason and not looking at what we actually did, but simply interpreting what we did by our motives. There is more to a good act and a good deed in God's sight than simply the right motive. There is doing it according to the standard of God's word as well as having the goal of glorifying God in what we do. Another way in which Christians, I believe, seek to justify their, their sin is in declaring that the end which they sought was righteous. The end justifies the means. You know, dear ones, the elimination of abortion is certainly a righteous end and goal. Every Christian should be praying that God would smite and strike from the face of this earth that wicked crime and sin. But that does not justify a Christian as a private citizen taking the sword from the hand of the civil magistrate and using it to kill abortionists or to bomb abortion clinics. The end does not justify the means. There are biblical means by which we bring about change in a country. Not by private citizens who have no magistrate under whom to submit, taking the sword and using it in an unlawful manner. This could also be a case of the end justifies the means as well. Someone may say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. As a Christian, they may say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And that's certainly a godly end, not to be a hypocrite. But because they say, I don't want to be a hypocrite, therefore, I won't do this and this and this and this because my heart isn't fully in it. In other words, these are things that God commands us to do. Because I don't want to be a hypocrite, I don't do these things. No, the end does not justify the means. God calls us to use biblical means to do so, even if we don't feel like it. But because we know it's right to do and we pray and we say, Lord, you know, my heart at this particular point. Cleanse me. Give me a hungering and thirsting for your word and for prayer and for obeying you in every way you command. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But that person continues to obey God and do what God commands. The end does not justify the means, dear ones. Paul uses this very statement or question. Some, he says, say of us, the apostles, let us do evil that good may come. God forbid. God forbid that we should do evil that good may come. Let us be cautious, therefore, that we do not rationalize our sin away using the foolish wisdom of men. We've looked at the claim of the false teachers in the first part of, of verse 10. Let us now consider John's refutation of this false claim, the latter part of verse 10. The false claim, if we say that we have not sinned, now the refutation by the Apostle John, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Beloved, when you deny your sin, excuse your sin or minimize your sin, John says, not Greg Price, John says, you call God to his face a liar. For his word and his spirit charge you with sin. God says, when you sin, God says, you've sinned. And you say, no, I didn't. Or you say, but God... There were extenuating circumstances. Or you might say, Okay, God, I sinned, but it's really not that great of a sin. What's the big deal? God says, You sinned. And that sin deserves my wrath. That one sin is enough to send you to hell. After all... That kind of rationalization would work very well as you look at the sin that Adam and Eve committed. They simply took a piece of fruit and ate it. And they and all of their descendants were condemned. See, the problem is we don't understand the justice and the holiness of God if that's the way we rationalize sin away Whenever we excuse a rationalized sin, we in effect say, no, it's not me that sinned, God. It's really you. It's really you that sinned because you're lying. You said I sinned and I didn't. You're the liar. I don't think that we would ever put it in those terms, but that's what John says. You call God a liar. You do not have to proclaim your sinless perfection in order to call God a liar, dear ones. You do so any time you excuse your sin, minimize your sin or the sin of others. You call God a liar. The Apostle John would have you know that this is a very serious sin. It's serious business. Last point that I'd like to make in this section is John's answer. We've looked at the false claim. We've looked at the reputation that John has offered. Let's look now at John's answer, which is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. through 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John has followed this pattern in the previous false claims that he's made concerning the Gnostics. This is the pattern that he has followed previously state the false claim refute the false claim answer the false claim with the truth as you look at each one of those false claims that's what John does states it refutes it or contradicts it says it's false and then answers and responds with biblical truth not a bad example to follow is it? It's not enough, dear ones, to simply refute and renounce false, false teaching. Preachers, teachers, elders, parents must as well diligently instruct in the truth. Dear ones, don't only correct your children's sins, reprove them for their sins, but also instruct them in the way of righteousness. It is true that Christianity is not simply all do's and don'ts. There are a lot of do's and don'ts, but it is not all do's and don'ts. There is much that we need to instruct our children concerning the promises of God. And if you obey God, look what God will bless you with to encourage your children as well. And that's what the Apostle John does here as a sound teacher for his little children in the faith. John begins with that that term of affection. My little children. This should remind all elders, all ministers, all teachers of the church that the members of their congregation are their little children. They are to love their little children. They are to instruct them. They are to pray for them. To protect them. To provide for them. And yes, discipline them. Just as they would their own children in their own home. Members of a congregation are not there to make the pastor famous, to simply build up a large congregation so that he can become famous and make a name for himself. That's not why members of a congregation are there. Members of a congregation are not there to, to stroke a pastor's ego. To make him feel good about himself. Members of a congregation, dear ones, are not there to make him wealthy. Members of a congregation are there to be nurtured as children who are to mature and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And it is our responsibility. To facilitate that process. To give them the tools by which they can grow and instruct others. To help fathers and husbands within a family to learn how to shepherd his own wife and his own children. So that we can have holy, godly families in the church of Jesus Christ. The elders can't do it all. But their responsibility is to shepherd those, to care for those, to love those, so that the process continues. On the other hand, children, responsibility for children as well. Children are to be submissive to all lawful commands that fathers give. They are to pray for their fathers in the faith. They are to seek to encourage them because oftentimes elders need encouragement as well. The wives of elders need encouragement as well. They are to make the children, with the children within the church, that is, those who are members of the congregation, are to make the job of their spiritual fathers Easy, as it were, to make their job joyful by their willingness to obey rather than to resist. The Apostle John, dear ones, writes this letter, he says in verse one, that you may not sin. That's another purpose that he cites for writing this letter, that you may not sin. Sin. Sin, as we have already seen, is never to be excused. However, the reality is that Christians sin. Christians sin. We don't excuse sin, but the reality of everyday life is that I sin, you sin. John condemns both of the errors of sinlessness as well as lawlessness. God's revealed will for you is that you not sin, and if you do fall into sin, there is hope. Praise God, there is a remedy, dear child of God, for you. Don't languish in your sin. Don't frolic in your sin. Don't run away in fear. Don't wallow in your self-pity. Don't bury yourself in discouragement and in despair. You, dear ones, have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, beloved it is possible to be either too lenient or too severe concerning sin. That is, what I mean by too severe concerning sin, I mean that that you may think or act as if there is no hope or no remedy to sin. You may continue to afflict yourself after God says, if you confess, I'm willing to. I promise, not just willing, I promise I will forgive. And you continue to torture yourself. That's sin on your behalf to do so. Because you're not trusting in the promise of God. There is hope. And His name is Jesus Christ, the Righteous. This Jesus Christ is the answer to your sin and to your restoration and fellowship with God because of two reasons. He's your advocate, and secondly, he's your propitiation. Let's briefly look at these two terms. As your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, appears in heaven as your defense lawyer. An advocate, that word, literally is one who comes alongside to help or to assist or to aid another. <clears throat> not only is the Holy Spirit, not only is the Lord Jesus Christ said to be an advocate, but the Holy Spirit is also called by the same name, by the same title. In the King James Version and other versions, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, It may be the comforter or it may be the helper. But it's the same term, paraclete. Jesus Christ is your defense lawyer. The Holy Spirit is your defense lawyer as well. Just as Christ appears in heaven to defend you against the attacks of the enemy before the throne of God, So the Holy Spirit appears in your heart to defend you against the attacks of the enemy before the throne of your conscience. Now there, I would submit to you, is a winning team. A winning defense team. The Holy Son of God and the Holy Spirit of God is your defense in heaven and with your own conscience. Dear ones, when you sin against the law and the grace of God, your accuser, your enemy, the devil, attacks you on two fronts, in heaven and in your conscience. And I believe it's probably true of all of us. It's true of your experience, I'm sure. You know what it is to sincerely confess your sin to God, to repent of it to the best of your uh, knowledge and ability, to forsake it, to ask God to give you the desire to hate it, to turn from it, and to seek God's forgiveness. And yet, to be tormented with ongoing guilt over that sin. Has God not forgiven First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the basis of God's justice and on the basis of His righteousness, He must, I say that respectfully, He must, in order to be true to His own holy character, He must forgive you. the accuser of the brethren. That's the devil. It's the prosecuting lawyer. And he's trying to make his case against you. And when you don't believe the word of God, you are listening to him rather than to God's own word and God's spirit, which states that your defense lawyer's The Son of God and the Spirit of God have already made their case on your behalf and the Father has already ruled. You are forgiven. You are forgiven when you confess your sins. The question is, who will you believe? Who will you believe? Will you believe the devil who was a liar from the beginning? Or will you believe the Son of God? who cannot lie. Don't lean, dear ones, on your own feelings. Don't lean on your own understanding, but rather lean on and trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Jesus Christ, your advocate, is unlike any other defense lawyer you have ever heard or seen. He does not plead your innocence. He doesn't plead your inexperience so as to excuse your sin. He doesn't plead your victimization as a child and what you went through as a child as an excuse, or rationalization for your sin. He doesn't ex- plead your sincerity that you tried to do your best. He doesn't blame others for your sin. that's not the defense that the Lord Jesus Christ takes. That may be the way that defense lawyers operate today in society, but this defense lawyer does not operate that way. In fact, this defense lawyer agrees with the enemy. Yes, he's sinned. Yes, God, he deserves your wrath and your punishment. But he pleads rather his own perfect righteousness on your behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He pleads that he has borne the guilt and the punishment of that sin and therefore you as a child of God are forgiven and restored to fellowship with God. And the father looks at his son and then he smiles at you. That's why we find in Romans 8.33-34 these glorious words. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ is your advocate, your defense lawyer. But he's also your propitiation. In fact, the only reason why you can have such an advocate as Jesus Christ the righteous is because he first has become your propitiation. Before God can forgive you the least of sin... His holy wrath against your sins must be propitiated. That is, God God and His holy wrath and His justice must be completely satisfied. God cannot simply wink at sin. He can't turn the other way. And while He's turned the other way, let us slip by His holy bar of justice. What do you think we might hear in all the newspapers today in Canada that the crime that was committed by Paul Bernardo were simply forgiven and swept under the carpet and the judge were to simply let him go scot-free? Now, granted, he's not going to probably get the justice that he deserves. But if he was totally exonerated and just let off the hook altogether. You would hear cries of, Injustice! Injustice! Or the papers in the United States. Susan Smith, who drowned her two children, were left completely um, without punishment. Again, she has not gotten what she deserves, which is death. But nevertheless, you would hear cries of injustice if she were completely exonerated. Why should we think it then wrong? Or why should heathens and pagans think it wrong that God Himself as the holy, righteous judge of the universe requires that His justice be satisfied before He can forgive sin? That's not some kind of pagan idea that God must be first propitiated. The pagans certainly abused that. The ancient pagans and the religions. They said God must be propitiated. Therefore, we must offer all of these sacrifices. We must do something for God. Even giving our children human life as a As a sacrifice, dear ones, through the death of God's own Son upon the cross, God's wrath has been propitiated. It has been satisfied. It has been turned away from you. God's hatred for sin has not changed. It's just that God's just wrath against our sin has been paid in full. And once the payment is made, it cannot be demanded sometime later. If Jesus Christ actually propitiated God's wrath toward our sin, it cannot be in hell repaid to us again. I'd have you carefully note that the text does not declare that Christ is the potential, hypothetical, or even probable propitiation for our sins. He is the actual, factual, and real propitiation for our sins. Christ actually, dear one, satisfied the holy justice of God against sinners so that those sinners will never have to endure God's wrath in hell. Now, if Christ died as a substitute, follow my line of reasoning. If Christ died as a substitute and propitiated the the wrath of God for every sinner in the world who has ever lived, and satisfied the holy justice of God against every sinner in the world who has ever lived, then no sinner can justly suffer eternal punishment in hell. That's universalism. But that view contradicts Revelation 21.8 and many other passages in Scripture where it speaks of those who are outside of God's kingdom who will suffer torment in hell. You see, ones, Arminianism teaches that Christ simply provided propitiation for all sinners, but only those who believe benefit from it. This is a provisional propitiation in this view. It makes Christ's propitiation actually powerless, ineffective, until we make it powerful and effective by our faith. But this, dear ones, is denied. This view is denied by the actual language of the text. Either Christ satisfied the wrath of God against sinners or he didn't. It's one or the other. There is no in-between position a provisional propitiation or satisfaction. Did he or didn't he? If Christ actually paid the penalty for sinners, then that debt cannot be paid by those sinners later on. Arminianism, dear ones, realizes that a real propitiation for all sinners means that all will be saved. That's what they they realize that because they say that it's made for all sinners. So they cannot say in their position, therefore they cannot say that Christ actually made propitiation for sin. But the biblical truth is embraced in Calvinism, which teaches that Christ truly satisfied God's justice against sinners. But it was only for those sinners whom God had chosen from eternity to save, that is, those sinners who would trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, Arminianism limits the power and the efficacy of Christ's atonement. It did not actually redeem. It did not actually purchase. It did not actually pay the penalty for the sinner. It did so provisionally. But Calvinism limits the extent of Christ's atonement. It actually did redeem and purchase and pay the penalty for whom? All those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Arminianism's view of the atonement is like an exceedingly wide bridge that all sinners can get on. But that bridge doesn't actually carry any one sinner all the way to heaven, it stops halfway. It doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself. Those sinners have to build the bridge the rest of the way through their faith. Whereas Calvinism's view of the atonement is like a more narrow bridge that only believing sinners can get on, but that bridge actually carries each and every believing sinner all the way to heaven. It goes all the way. It accomplishes redemption and propitiation for the sinner. Turn with me very quickly. I know I'm running out of time, but I do want to just get this before I conclude. I just want to point this one passage out to you that I think is one of the strongest passages to teach this view 2 Corinthians 5, which we read earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Very simple little phrase. If one died for all, then all died. Who are the all? Because it's the same all in both cases. The all for whom Christ died, all those died with Christ. And next verse says that all of those who died with Christ, verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live So all of those for whom Christ died, died with Christ, that they should, might live with Christ. So here you have this logical procession of thought. Christ died for all, therefore all died. All those who die live in Christ. Look at verse... 18 and 19, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, to Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now notice this phrase. How did Christ reconcile the world to himself? Not imputing their sins to them. Well, to whom were their sins imputed? If he didn't impute them to those who committed the sin, who were they imputed to? Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the world in this particular verse reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins against them. If the world, meaning every single sinner who has ever lived, if that's what the word world means, that their sins have not been imputed to them, then they cannot stand in condemnation before God and be sent to hell, which teaches universalism again. The sense in which we must understand the world here is people from every tribe, tongue, nation who come to believe in Christ. Their sins are not imputed to them because their sins were imputed to Christ and he died in their place. You see, dear ones, the propitiation John proclaims is for our sins, it says in 1 John two, 2 For our sins. That is... The immediate circle of disciples. When he uses the word hour, that word hour is used in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. It refers to the immediate circle of disciples, the apostles. And so we must understand hour to include the apostles and the disciples, and also the hour there to include the believers to whom John was immediately addressing this letter. Those who were living in Asia to whom this letter was sent. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. But it's not limited to those two groups. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That is, those throughout the whole world who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. From every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. And therefore, because that is the case, the gospel must go to every tribe, tongue, people, nation. In conclusion, dear ones, the glory of the gospel is that we have an advocate who pleads for mercy on the ground of his own righteous action. The cross, dear ones, is not to be understood in terms of the Father punishing an innocent third party for our sins. Rather, the cross is to be understood in this way, that God took upon himself all the punishment that his wrath justly demands. He didn't simply grab an innocent bystander, a third party, from off the side of the street and say, you're going to die for the sins of the world, the God Himself became man and paid the penalty to redeem man who had sinned against Him, who had cursed Him. It was not that Christ's propitiation on the cross turned God's wrath into God's love toward you. Rather, it was that God set His love upon you while you were still His enemy. And His love for you moved him to remove all his righteous and just wrath against you. His wrath didn't become his love towards you. His love was placed upon you from all eternity. And it was his love that moved him to remove his wrath towards you so that you might enjoy fellowship with the living God. That's why John can teach in this passage, no advocate, no fellowship with God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we bow before you and plead with you to impress these truths upon our mind to cause them to become engraved upon the tablets of our hearts that we would not wander from them to believe a lie. But God causes us to see that there is an answer to our sin moment by moment, daily. It is to come to Christ, our advocate, our defense lawyer, to come to him as our propitiation for all of our sin. Lord, encourage your people in the truth today. Lift up their hearts to cling to Christ as they've never clung to him in the, in the past. Oh, Father, we pray that you would cause, by this means, you would cause us to be sanctified in the truth. In Jesus' name.
1: Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N, Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada, T six L three T five.